This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. I'm Ann Powers, critic and correspondent for NPR Music, and today I'm here to share a conversation I had with the one and only Polly Jean Harvey, truly one of my favorite artists of all time. Harvey's one of the most adventurous musicians out there. In fact, to call her simply a musician, it's inaccurate. She's a visual artist, she's a multidisciplinary performer, she's worked in theater, film, and video. She's published two books of poetry, including Orlam, the story of a nine-year-old girl named Ira Abel, that's told in part in the native dialect of Harvey's Dorset region and published last year. P.J. Harvey's brand new album, I Inside the Old Year Dying, further illuminates the world that Orlam brought to the page. The album is co-produced by her longtime collaborators, Flood and John Parrish, and it sounds so good. It's out this week. Harvey recently spoke with me from her home in Dorset. The song that opens the new album is called Prayer at the Gate. It has this line. The line is, speak your wordle to me. Now, Americans might find that funny because wordle is a popular puzzle that I play every day. But in the Dorset dialect, wordle means world. And Polly, you know, it occurs to me that the line describes what you've done with this album. And with the book, Orlam, and with the drawings that you've made depicting the landscapes where these stories take place. You've spoken a world. You did it by weaving together all these different art forms. I'm wondering if you could talk about that process. Mm. It, it, um, it quite quickly took its own shape and then felt like it was leading me. But one of the keys that opened up this world for me was the Dorset dialect and becoming really interested in, in learning that. Because as... As a poet, it gave me such another lively form to work with because it gave the words a kind of double meaning. So, for instance, you pulling the, the word wordle out, although it means world in Dorset dialect, you've also got word in there and, of course, the word of God, and it carries such an enormous capacity for wrapping everything together. But I found that that was a journey I went on with the whole of the dialect within the book and the book was the first thing that took shape so initially I was just aiming to write my second collection of poetry and I was working with Don Patterson who was my mentor and I was working on a three-year poetry course with him so it was really on my coursework that the the first few poems of Orlam were written and Don and I quickly saw that something was beginning to take shape and it aligned very well with my interest in the Dorset dialect to 
use that as a platform into this collection of poems. But then I, I've always been someone that um, draws and creates music, as you know, and it's as I've got older, it's become more and more natural for me that they all just sort of bleed together. So if I'm, for instance, a bit stuck on a poem and I, I can't work out where it's going, I'll often spend time drawing it as a way into it uh, to help me understand more of what I'm trying to say. And likewise, I might also play it through the piano, sort of play the feeling. And therefore, these this work kind of morphed into drawings and then into music as well. But primarily, I only set out to write a collection of poetry. Wow, you know, that is so fascinating to me because it's almost like you're accessing different parts of your body or your brain or your sensory system to bring this stuff to life. It does feel like that. I think when I was younger, I used to try and keep them separate in the separate categories. But, but now I realize that you really can't and it's actually detrimental for me to try and keep them separate and the whole of the work flows better if I just let it be what it's going to be and I've realised that I'm just an artist that makes things out of words and music and images and I'm never quite sure what I'm going to end up with and this is a lovely example of that. Um, but even in the early stages of writing a song, I, I very often see it in images and colours and it's almost as if I'm creating the music to go with a scene, almost like a scene from a film and I'll see the colours and the time of day and so that you know the, the, the images, the words, the music, they, they all feed each other really. For listeners who haven't had the pleasure of entering into the world of Orlam or of the new album, can you just describe the story that you're telling? The book Orlam is my second collection of poetry. It took me eight years to write. It's basically a year in the life of a nine-year-old in a rural part of the west of England in a non-specific era. And it documents her year month by month, paying particular attention to what's happening in the natural world around her, observing nature and its cyclical patterns. And it's just what happens to her in that one year. And it's it's fantastical, nonsensical, but sensical at the same time. It's uh, playful in its imagination, I would say. It's a mixture of seriousness and humour and Dorset dialect, which adds another layer to the meaning of everything. Absolutely. I read several interviews with you in which you talked about this idea of collapse as a kind of aesthetic or action that runs through these works. The collapse of time and space, blurring of genders, of myth and reality, life and death. How do you convey this within these songs? Like I was thinking of one like Lonesome Tonight or Lonesome Tonight. Inner Pills. Peanut and banana 
which is also a poem in Orlam. And it blends images of Elvis, Jesus, the natural world. Like, how does collapse work for you as a principle in this music and in the book? Well, coming back to the poetry, you can make the language work really hard for you. So often, you know, as we know, uh, words carry double, sometimes triple meanings. So you can add two or three layers in there. But then you've got things like Elvis, who was also known as the king, appearing on Maundy Day, which is a religious festival celebrating the Last Supper. So, OK, we've got, we've got Christ, we've got Elvis, we've got a king. You know, so do you see what I mean? We can bring lots of threads in, but the beauty of poetry is that you can bring that in and have those layers existing all at the same time. So it can mean a lot of things depending on what the reader or the listener wants to pull out of it and make theirs. I very specifically wanted to set out to do that, to have this non-linear, no-era, every-era world going on. I love that no-era, every-era, because it challenges the idea that art is timeless. Art always comes from a time and place. I mean, even William Blake, I know you're a huge William Blake fan, was writing you know, about the circumstances of the changes in, in England, the industrialization, as he was creating his own world. So I wonder how sort of the contemporary moment uh, affected these works. I think uh, very much uh, I'm affected by the contemporary world. I think also going back to the non-linear collapsing of time and space, I sort of feel that on a daily basis anyway. It's I sometimes feel, you know, particularly simple things like uh, dream or wakefulness, going going into sleep day and night. Like, where do we go when we sleep? You know, it's like this, you enter this whole different parallel universe. And it's, I, I feel that we're sort of there anyway. Life and death is such a fine line. And then it's just, a, again, marrying that with the changing seasons and the way the seasons change year after year, the way one year collapses into another. What is the line between male or female or child and adult? It's, that was what I was very interested in in this book, that place of a threshold where you're not sure you're in a sort of between worlds, shadow land. I wondered if you had um, almanacs in mind or other sort of books of ritual in a sense, because reading Orlam and then listening to the album, I experienced the album was to put it on repeat. It had a very cyclical effect on me. Um, I felt myself moving through the seasons with it. And I wondered if you were thinking about those kinds of texts at all. Yeah, I was. In fact, I did a lot of research whilst writing Orlam. I was studying folklore. I was looking at a, a lot of other texts to inspire me and to inform me. And I think also in putting together the album, I, I wanted to try and find a soundscape that carried some of that magical unknown in it. I wanted to find that, that mystery and that sort of spell-like place that you could go into. And I, I really feel that we, we did manage to capture that. And I'm so glad we did because that's what the words needed. They needed the sound 
to support their mystery. I'm so glad that you brought up the the sound of the album. Another artist might have turned to you know identifiable folk sounds for this album. You know, with its rural setting, its connection to old stories. I mean, this is a Polly Harvey record. This is a PJ Harvey record. It's recognizable completely as part of your your various but unified body of work. But I wonder if you were thinking about folk traditions at all as you were creating the music with your collaborators. I very much wanted to avoid tipping into predictable folk music, which these words and this subject matter would have lent itself to so well. So I went the opposite direction. And other than the main instrument and the voice, I really wanted everything to be quite unidentifiable and unidentifiable and strange um, because of, of that need to create this magical mystical unknown universe that I wanted the words to inhabit and it was a very hard thing to do um so often we would jettison a sound because it it was too familiar to us and Flood and and John Parrish who I worked very closely with in creating the sound we were all on the same direction trying really hard to not sound predictable but also not to sound like anything that we felt that we'd done together before because we'd worked together for 30 years now and we're all very, very interested in continuing to discover new things and create new sounds and that gets harder the more work that you've made um, because there's more to avoid. So it, it was it was hard but I really feel that we we pushed ourselves into quite new places and certainly I think with my singing I, I, I've feel like I haven't sung in the way that I've sung before like I do on this record and that was with great thanks to to Flood and John for really pushing me out of my comfort zone and finding new voices I was thinking about your voice on this record and how it does reach a new place, but it carries with it the voices you've given us in the past. Many people might mark the beginning of your intense vocal experimentation at white chalk when you first focused on your higher register. But throughout your career, you've distorted your voice both as it emanates from your body and using studio effects. Um, it's almost like your voice is more a channel for all of these different selves, Polly, the characters you create, than simply, quote-unquote, your voice. Was there a point when you realized that about your singing and your music in general, that you were able to channel all of these selves and worlds? I think um, when I was younger, so on the first couple of albums, Dry and Rid of Me, I was just doing it naturally, but I wasn't really aware that I was doing it. But for me, it was trying to inhabit the character of the song. Who's the narrator of this song and how would they portray that song? And then as I've become more consciously aware of what I'm doing, probably from To Bring You My Love onwards, I would dive into that even more, like really inhabit the character. And then the more that I've worked in 
the world of theatre and film, I've become to really enjoy and appreciate watching actors and how actors inhabit a character. I have such respect for actors and the, their work and what they can do. And that's been inspiring to me also. That's not to say that I feel like I'm leaping into a different character. I often don't. I just feel like it's more opening a channel. I think you used that description earlier. It's more like just opening the doorway for something to come through you in a, in a really pure way. Well, speaking of actors, um, your good friend Ben Wishaw appears on this record, does some vocalizing. And I know that so he was the sounding board for you for this record, right? Yeah, Ben Wishaw, also the actor Colin Morgan, and a wonderful theatre director called Ian Rickson, who I've worked with a lot here in England, done a lot of theatre scoring for him. But at one stage, we were thinking about putting Orlam on stage. And so I'd been experimenting with read-throughs and workshops of Orlam as a stage piece with Ben Wishaw and Colin Morgan with Ian trialling it as a director. But it didn't it just didn't really come to life and we all felt that no, it, it's not at its best in this form. But then it grew into a musical piece, which has become this album. And so because Colin and Ben had already been on quite a lot of the journey with me, they'd been reading the poems with me, I'd been showing them the poems as they'd grown that it, it made a lot of sense to me that they'd be involved as the other voices on the record. And I also knew that they had great voices and I wanted them to inhabit these, the male characters, the male part to the female part, if you like. And, um, and I think that, that their singing is absolutely beautiful on it. voice steps in it adds a completely different dimension when you hear the hear the male character stepping in in the choruses or ben with ben's voice stepping in to sing love me tender you know yeah is he the elvis of this record um i think he is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he might be the elvis of a lot of uh, people's hearts <laughs> I really wanted to ask you about the incorporation of field recordings, found sounds, distorted elements um, to build the world. Again, when I was at first thinking that I might put Orlam on stage, I began to just collect field recordings um, myself, to recording them myself. But then also because I've worked in the theatre world a lot, I had a lot of great sound designer friends. Sound designers for theatre have just about any sound you can think of at their fingertips, which is just a sort of library of sounds which are open for sound designers to use. So I could be as specific as say to somebody, can you find me a November wind through barbed wire at dawn? And they would have like three different options for me. I'd go, oh, thanks. You know, so, so it was a mixture of my own plus library sounds from sound, sound design theatre world. And then when it turned into a musical album rather than a theatre piece, I 
felt like I still wanted to make use of these natural noises, but in the same way that I wanted to avoid using a, a stereotypical folk sound, I wanted to avoid these natural sounds as being stereotypical nature noises. And so we fed them through lots of um, very basic analogue gear, uh, which was manipulated by hand in real time. So the album actually was basically recorded live. We we were all in a room together, myself, John Parrish, Flood and Cecil. Now Cecil, was he was operating the, the field recordings and playing them in real time through through tape recorders that you're speeding up, slowing down, or playing them through keyboard programs after programming in the natural sounds and playing them on the keys. So he would be playing that, and John and I would improvise with him with the song. So I, I had the, the chord progression and the melody and the words, and John and I would switch instruments. So sometimes I might be on bass or I'd be on guitar or piano, John might be on drums or he might be on guitar or keyboards. And then Flood very often would set up some sort of mic that he'd feed back into one of his really early synthesizers from when they were first built. I mean, these synthesizers, I'd never seen anything like it. They look, they look like an old wooden dresser or a sideboard crossed with a telephone exchange. And he would just sort of move different plugs in and out and this thing would come to life and start trying to generate a rhythm out of what John and myself and Cecil were playing. So then we'd start playing with the rhythm that this thing was generating. We were just feeding off each other in the moment. I And, and a lot of the recordings are actually just that. So my vocal were done at the same time. So my, you know, my voice has the drums and all the other sounds going down it, which it also leads to this beautiful sort of world that you enter because everything was recorded in the same room together. So you, you feel like you stepped into a particular world of sound because all of the sounds are going down every single microphone, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, I know you call yourself a maker and this feels like a very much a maker's project. I've tried so many times to step into the digital world with equipment that actually works when you press go. I still go back to my analog equipment. There's just something so tactile. And so um, I, I, I love that it makes mistakes and it makes hiss and it goes wrong. And there's something so wonderful about that haphazardness of it as well. A friend of mine, Charles Cronengold, has said that um, all of the great musical innovations were initially mistakes. I really believe that. I, I end up loving the mistakes that get made. Well, in this world, you know, all of these different elements, these hand-hewn elements, the central one for me is the Dorset dialect. Uh, you were so diligent in learning this dialect, employing it within Orlam in remarkable ways. It's a nearly lost language. And you use it throughout your poetry, mixing it up with standard English and what I like to call 
the PJ Harvey language, <laughs> which also exists. Um, in some ways, this recalls for me the work of poets like George McKay Brown, who I know you love, or more currently, someone like Dorian Negriofa in Ireland, or uh, Martin Shaw, the storyteller, who are not exactly preserving lost stories and lost languages, but revivifying them by changing them. So I wonder how you first made the decision to use the Dorset dialect, and then how did you, as they say in the most corny way, how did you make it your own? Um, one of the poems I wrote early on in my mentorship course with Don Patterson had been leaning into some of the words I'd remembered from being a child. I, I mean, I remember the elders in the village using some of those words, and they're still used to this day in, in rural parts of, of England and Wales and Scotland. You know, there's a lot of dialect still running through people and and it's it's precious and that you know i i was just so fascinated in it because it still felt alive within me i think on you know at some level i sort of knew the words anyway but they've also got this guttural sonic quality that you sort of understand the word even if you don't in a in a comprehensive way you feel you feel it you you feel it through the sound you understand it through the sound of the word and um because I'd begun to use it in these early poems it was it was Dom that said to me I think this could be a really fantastic direction for you to go and explore it more and then that led me on to reading poems poets like William Barnes and Thomas Hardy both of whom used dialect in their work and and William Barnes had collected together the Dorset dialect and a glossary, and that sort of became my Bible for the book. But you were very right to bring to mention George Mackay Brown. I'm, I'm so glad you did. But, I mean, even Shakespeare invented his own words. But the thing about Mackay Brown is that he also invented his own iconography. So he'd build his characters. I was very interested in building my cast of characters as well, as he did. And and inventing my own words. When I couldn't find the dialectal word for what I needed, then I just made it up. And that is the way that dialect was built anyway. Is there a favorite word or phrase in one of these songs that you can single out, something you love to sing, something you love to have roll off your tongue? Well, I think that the song title, Seam and I, is a great example, because, it, you know, Seam and I just mean, what it? it means, well, it seems to me, it's how we would say, well, it seems to me that... But um, in dialect, it's just seem and I. Um, and I just think it's beautiful. It's just, it's so elegant and so beautiful and so moving, really. And that started off that whole song. Her fingernails are ripped from hauling playful bills out of the river's edges, put pots with happy voices. Consumed with tranquetta. By scratching, whispers, famous thistles, or sickly chicken whistles. Since I childhood, we've played to real warm wood. We've not friends running nowhere. We've found a way when elsewhere. I'm so glad you brought up Semenai because in Semenai you have the wonderful Dorset phrase bedraggled angels to describe 
wet sheep. And then this image of Ira Abel's ripped fingernails from pulling clay from the riverbank. And I wanted to ask, as a woman who grew up a country girl, I imagine this imagery came naturally to you. So much writing about nature can be sentimental or gauzy. So how do you keep it dirty? Oh, I don't know if it makes sense to say a sense of humor, but <laughs> I mean, I think I think um, I have a, I have a great sense of humor, and a lot of people don't know that. But I'm, I really enjoy humor, and there's a lot of darkness in our world that we deal with on a daily basis, and I think. To see the to see the humour in really dark things can be a lifesaver, and I think you know a lot of times, yeah, you could see a a bedraggled sheep, you know, or you can see a wet sheep, or you can see a bedraggled angel, and there's kind of there's humour, but there's but it's also serious, and I think I also refer to the the ewes as shabby mothers, and in again just thinking about it's kind of conjuring the actual image too, you know, because if you Every single word you use in a poem has to work really hard for you. So by saying bedraggled angels, you, you, you know, angels, we think of whiteness and you think of the whiteness of the fleece, but you also think of the, the fleece wet and heavy and you've got the bedragglement there. But, and the shabby mothers, I mean, again, fleece kind of gets pulled off by brambles and they always look a bit shabby with their wool coming off of them. And so you've got a lot of different images going hand in hand with the actual meaning of the words that you're using. Yes. The tactile nature of your writing is very affecting. And once when you were asked about your penchant for dark themes, you said something I absolutely loved. You said you have a natural inclination to look under the surface. And this gave me an image of you lifting up a log and seeing all the creepy crawlies under it. <laughs> and from this view, darkness is truly illuminating. It's a source of growth. And I wondered if it's been frustrating to you over the years when, you know, you've been pegged as this sort of goth wraith, when in fact you're someone out there poking around in the life cycle, you know? Yeah, it, it's exactly that, Anne. I mean, I learned early on to, to not get frustrated by feeling like people didn't fully see what I was trying to do and I just continue to just go about my work but it but it is that I mean I've always just been so curious as a person I I love learning I mean that's that's also why I don't want to do the same things over and over again I I'm so interested in learning in exploration seeing where I can go next just so excites me so yes, exactly. I love seeing what's under the surface when you lift it up. I love seeing where something might lead me if I've got the courage to follow it. And and I've always been like that. It's just a life is just such a wonderful thing to just keep exploring. Well, I'm thankful. <laughs> I'm thankful for every exploration you make. And on especially on your past few albums, you have gone to places where other artists don't always go. You've confronted the absolute goriness of war. You've walked the streets of different cities to see the ugliness and the beauty in those places. And here you bring us into, into these woods, into this uh, village where one specific darkness is happening one darkness you confront in this work is 
sexual abuse and the sexual abuse of children. A key point in the story of Ira Abel is when she is assaulted by in a shed by a local boy. Other male figures in Underwillem exhibit predatory behavior. I wondered why, for you, it was important to make this a linchpin in the story of Ira, Ira Abel and Ira Abel's transformation. Um, I think I definitely wanted the light and the dark, and that's always fascinated me. You know that those those opposites. So oh, there's a lot of lightness and there's a lot of humor in the book, but there's also a lot of darkness. And as there is in our lives. Um, so I wanted it to reflect that. But also, in terms of the story, there needs to be moments of transformation in order to move our narrative. And so there had to be also this tipping point in my story that was going to move the main character into a moment of transformation and towards her destiny. Well, that transformation of which you speak... You use the term unsexed, and there is a fascinating instability of gender throughout the story of Orlam. There's also an instability even of species, I will say. Orlam, we haven't mentioned, is an all-seeing eye of a dead lamb, an undead lamb, maybe. There's a way in which um, there's no separation between human and animal in this world, or human and spirit. So I, I wondered how the... I don't want to say genderlessness, but the fluidity of gender connects with these other forms of fluidity in the world of the album and of Orla. Yeah, I think it, it ties back into what we were talking about earlier of um, the collapsing of era and of time and of place. I also wanted to collapse as much as I could all of those other boundaries of man or woman or animal or human natural, man-made, all of it. And so this was this was part of it too. But I was also interested in each character having a dual aspect to them, male, female, but also that a lot of their names, as you know, are hyphenated names and each name has a meaning. So again, it was just showing the non-linear quality of how I feel life to be, really. I mean, what... It, it, it is, you know, I just wanted it to be as open as I, as I feel it is. There's a way uh, when you're out in the woods that, I don't know, that nonlinear quality takes over, you know? I mean, I don't want to be corny about it or romanticize, you know, nature. I don't want to be wood, Wordsworth here wandering. <laughs> but it makes sense to me for this story that you would challenge those boundaries. And I wondered if you meditated upon these texts as you were wandering through the countryside? I, I think at a subconscious level, I just knew that I didn't want anything to be pinned down. I wanted it to be very open to interpretation and I wanted it to feel as open as it feels to me when being in that sort of landscape. But also coming back to the music, I mean, when, when I'm in the moment in music not just my own, but even if I'm enraptured by somebody else's, whether live or whether just listening on a record, I, f I don't feel one thing or another. I don't feel alive nor dead. I don't feel man nor woman. I just feel the music. And I think it was about 
you know, wanting to tap into that really pure place where you, you just feel and you just experience and nothing yet really has a name. Trying to keep the childhood imagination alive. But that's the beauty of it too, is that when you're a child, nothing really does have a name. You know, and we go around saying, why is that blue? What's what's blue? You know, and you you, know, you have to say, well, yeah, what is what is blue? What does blue mean? So it's 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 sort of just seeing everything anew for the first time, and then really looking at it again, and asking what what is this? Well, Polly, I think for me throughout your career, you have given me music that makes me think about those moments when nothing has a name, and you have. Uh, You've given me new ways to name things, and I'm so I'm so grateful <laughs> for for all you've done. I just have one final question. I know that you are at something of a crisis point about making music when you started on this album, and maybe even when you turned to Orlam as a book and spent those years creating this amazing book. You've said that music had lost its primary hold on you. Did that feeling? of music as the center return? Or do you feel that you, like Ira Abel, have transformed and now as a whole maker, um, constantly making in different realms, you are just, you know, more holistically creative. And do you think this is more possible today for artists, for artists to not necessarily identify as one thing, as maybe it was, you know, before the various entertainment industries took over? Is it more possible to simply be a maker? Um, I mean, going back to William Blake, you know, William Blake, he wrote songs, he drew beautifully, he wrote incredible poems. So I think forever artists have been doing this, many things at the same time. I mean, other artists like David Lynch, you know, he's a wonderful artist as well as a filmmaker, Steve McQueen, filmmaker, sculptor, you know, you go on and on. So I think it's very natural for artists to move it through different media. For me, I, I temporarily felt that I, I'd lost my connection to music. And actually going back to Steve McQueen, he was enormously helpful at that, to me at that time when I talked to him about this sort of heartbreak I was feeling about feeling like I'd lost the joy, really, in it all. And he encouraged me to just take the boundaries away and just look at what I loved. What, you know, he was saying to me, well, what do you love? You love you love words, you love images, and you love music. Like, just think about what can you do with those three things? It doesn't have to be anything. It doesn't have to be an album. It doesn't have to be a drawing. It just, like, you've got these three things that you love just, and it helped me refine the joy in it again. Um, and I think that joy that I could remember having initially when I first started writing songs when I was 17, and it was just utter joy. And that was what I'd lost. And then through this journey, through writing Orlam, through spending years doing that alone, I sort of rekindled my love of everything and took away all those boundaries. And now I feel like more full of joy and that anything is possible again than I felt in absolutely years. I feel that joy on this record. Polly Harvey, 
We're so excited to have new music from you. I hope everyone also reads Orlam. I wonder if you will be doing any um, readings as well as musical performances when you come to the States, because I've heard of your readings being quite amazing and dramatic. I really want to do that. We, we plan to do it, definitely. I'll come and read Orlam, yes. Buds of break, milky seeps, heady in the meadows, chalky children on the steep, baskets full of shadows. PJ Harvey's new album, I Inside the Old Year Dying, is out July 7th. This episode was produced by Skylar Swenson and edited by Robin Hilton with additional support from Daoud Tyler-Amin, Hazel Sills, and Jacob Gans. Our VP for Music and Visuals is Keith Jenkins. For NPR Music, I'm Ann Powers. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning wherever you get your podcasts.